You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. My work over the past several years has included hundreds of conversations with yoga teachers, and one common thread among them is a sense of purpose and meaning attached to their teaching. It seems to be nearly universal among yoga teachers that they have this deep intuitive sense that sharing the teachings of yoga is what they were meant to do in the world. As a yoga teacher myself, I can relate. I fell in love with yoga when I was in college in the early 2000s, and I experienced it as a warm hug in comparison to another discipline, which is karate, that I was also practicing. Shortly after my college graduation, I enrolled in a yoga teacher training, primarily as a way to deepen my own practice, but also as a way to help me figure out what the heck I wanted to do with my life after graduation. I did get pregnant partway through the training and ended up dropping out of that first training, but my commitment to my yoga practice remained strong and I ended up graduating from the same YTT just a few years later when my daughter was two. I don't remember making a conscious decision to teach, but by the time I graduated, I had already applied to and been hired by the local YMCA. And internally, I had undergone a major identity shift. Instead of thinking myself as only a student of yoga, and of course I will always be a student, but I also started to think of myself as a teacher, which is an identity that I've now held and held dear for over 16 years. I remember in college, right around the time that I discovered yoga, also being really moved by Viktor Frankl's work, specifically his book, Man's Search for Meaning, a title clearly chosen before inclusive language was a thing. In that book, Frankl explains that meaning serves a number of important functions in human lives. First, meaning provides purpose. Second, it furnishes values or standards by which to judge our actions. And third, it gives us a sense of control over the events in our lives. Finally, it also provides us with self-worth. When people are unable to find meaning for any of these functions, or when they lose or outgrow the meanings that they once had, they become distressed. And many emotional problems result from a failure to find meaning in life and can be resolved only through finding something else to make life worth living. Frankel, 1992. Throughout the past 16 years, my yoga teacher identity has gone a long way towards bringing meaning to my life. It's an identity that has kept me moving when I wanted to be sedentary, inspired stillness when I wanted to run away from something hard, and most importantly, taught me to face my emotional pain with a sense of welcoming instead of as an enemy. I strongly believe that the reason I was willing to do the hard work that I just described was because the sense of purpose that being a yoga teacher provided for me. In 1942, psychologist Abraham Maslow created a framework for human needs that places the importance of meaning in context with the other needs that we have. 
Maslow's hierarchy, described as a pyramid, starts with the most basic and concrete needs and works its way up to the most abstract. His original framework has five needs, physiological needs, including air, water, food, and warmth, safety, including employment, security, resources, order, and predictability, love and belonging, which contains friendship, romance, and community affiliation, esteem, which includes prestige, accomplishment, and learning, and then at the very top of the pyramid, self-actualization, including growth, creativity, achieving your potential, peak experiences, and the sense of contributing to something bigger. Although the term hierarchy implies a strict order, Maslow stated that the exact order will vary from person to person and situation to situation. In addition, most behavior is multi-motivated. Maslow says, any behavior tends to be determined by several or all of the basic needs simultaneously rather than by just one of them. Maslow ended up expanding his original framework to eight stages by adding cognitive needs, aesthetic needs, and transcendence needs. However, I personally prefer the five-stage version because I think it's easier to grasp, and I also think that the additions that he created can actually nestle inside the five-stage version. Maslow's framework is relevant to this conversation because what I notice is that teaching yoga could fulfill every single stage When I teach yoga for an income, it's tied up with meeting my physiological needs as well as security and safety. When I connect with my students and fellow teachers, that contributes to my sense of belonging. As my teaching skills and my student base grows, it builds my sense of esteem and accomplishment. And when I push myself to master certain practices and put myself out there for my business, it fulfills my need for creativity, growth, and peak experiences. Finally, the study of philosophy and the commitment to the ethics of yoga allow me to feel like I'm part of something bigger and working for the greater good of humanity. No wonder teaching yoga feels like such a soul calling to so many of us. It has the potential to allow us to fulfill every single stage in Maslow's framework. To be completely fair, I'm sure yoga isn't the only vocation that does so, but the multi-dimensionality of the practice and accompanying philosophy is pretty unusual. And I think it explains a lot about why so many feel so deeply drawn to this practice, so much that they're willing to give up security in other aspects of their life and comfort in other aspects of their life to pursue it. Since the teachings of yoga that most of us follow and practice come from India, it's important to look beyond just a purely Western framework and Think about this through the lens of the Hindu teachings that that are so deeply interrelated with yoga philosophy. The word dharma is a widely accepted loanword for the English language, and it's thrown around a lot, especially in yoga and other Eastern-based spiritual communities. Now, the meaning of dharma differs based on which tradition you follow, and I'm going to stick with the Hindu meaning here because it's most relevant for modern yoga practitioners and teachers. Within Hinduism, dharma means behavior that is in accord with the natural order and supports a right or ethical way of living. 
The Hindu concept of dharma is concerned with individual practical morality, and within the Hindu tradition, there are two types of dharma. If you have studied Sanskrit, I wouldn't ask you to forgive my pronunciation of this first word because I've not been taught how to pronounce it. I've only read it. So Sanatama Dharma is the unchanging and immutable Dharma, while Yuga Dharma adapts to changing times. Let's apply this to the ethical framework of yoga contained in Yama and Niyama. Within each of these, there is a kernel, a seed that is unchanging, such as the goal to do less harm, has this very universally understood meaning that has remained constant over time. However, the application of what that means has changed through time and culture. When Patanjali wrote about Ahimsa, he probably never imagined making the calculation about how much damage air travel might wreak. So as practitioners of this yoga philosophy, I think it's really helpful for us to tease apart each of the ethical concepts and look at what is the unchanging essence of this versus what are the ways of expressing this essence that are appropriate for the time and place where I live. Within the same framework, there are three sources to learn Dharma. First, you can learn through the literature with the help of a teacher. So that is the Yoga Sutras, for example. Two, you can observe the behaviors of your role models. And three, you can follow your intuition or your innate sense of what feels right. Within the yoga tradition, when a list is presented in order, we are always presented with the most important or most reliable thing first. So the implication here is that ideally you would have a teacher and be studying the literature. You would also be observing your role models for maybe something that wasn't covered in the literature, and you would rely on your intuition as a backup. Now, think about this. If you have these three ways of learning, then you can check them against each other. So if you have something that is stated in the literature and it's been explained to you by a teacher, you've also observed people that you respect acting in a way that reinforces those teachings. And at the same time, your intuitive sense of rightness provides the checks and balances. So here's where it gets a little sticky. People have definitely taken advantage of the teachings of yoga, these really wonderful teachings, to create unhealthy hierarchies that ended up abusing and harming people. So I also think it's important not to give too much power over to authority and a teacher to expose yourself to multiple different perspectives and make sure that not all your role models exist within the same closed community. Taken with those caveats, I think that this is a really elegant system where you do want to make sure that you have teachers, that you have role models, and that your intuition is also fully on board and actively counterbalancing and regulating the information that you get from the outside. 
Another relevant framework from within the Hindu tradition is the Purush Artas, or the four goals of life. These include Arta. Arta refers to resources or means. Dharma, Kama, which means joy or pleasure, and Moksha, or liberation. So here is that word Dharma again. Remember that earlier I defined it as acting ethically and in accordance to the natural order of things. Within this context, it takes on an additional nuance of fulfilling your purpose. This speaks to finding your place within the natural order of things. Looking at yoga through this framework, it makes a lot more sense that yoga would be perfectly situated to fulfill all four of these goals because they were created within the same cultural context. And you could even make an argument that yoga was specifically designed to fulfill at least a few of these means, specifically dharma and moksha. So let's look at how yoga fulfills all four of these goals for living. If you earn your living teaching yoga, then it will provide means or resources. When you feel a calling to teach, then teaching fulfills that need to bring meaning to your life, to have a sense of where you fit in the natural order and feel like the work you're doing has purpose. If you enjoy teaching and if you enjoy practicing, then yoga contributes to pleasure and joy in your life. And finally, significantly, the promise of yoga at its essence is that it leads towards the ultimate liberation, which is the final and overarching goal of the Purusharta framework. The Purusharta framework is kind of complex because it also overlaps with a life stage framework that basically says that depending on which life stage you're in, you will be focusing more on one or another of these. Now, the focus on liberation is definitely consistent throughout all of the life stages, but there are some life stages where you focus more on arta, on building your resources, such as the time when you would have children and a family. And then there are times when you would focus more on dharma and moksha, such as the ending part of your life, where hopefully you have either built up enough resources that you don't have to worry about that anymore, or you have moved to an ashram. The life stage system is actually called the ashram system because the goal or the path is towards an ashram or a pulling away from the material world to focus more on the spiritual towards the later part of your life. So looking at how your yoga teaching relates to that first goal of arta or building resources. There are four ways basically that you can approach your teaching. It can be a hobby, a charity, a form of employment, or a business. Many yoga teachers teach essentially as a hobby where they spend roughly the same amount as they earn, or maybe they spend even more than they earn. And then they have another job or are another means of support to pay their living expenses. Now, I don't mean to minimize the depth of commitment that these teachers have. A lot of times they're choosing to teach as a hobby 
because they have such a passion for teaching and they don't want to sully it by trying to make it a business. And that is a very beautiful and admirable approach. At the same time, it does require a certain level of privilege, which not not everybody has. The next category is a charity. And I think a lot of yoga teachers who I'm categorizing as a hobby think of themselves more as a charity because they're teaching as seva. They're teaching a sacred service. But for me, the main difference between the hobby and the charity is that if you're running a charity, you're soliciting donations from outside to fund your teaching. So perhaps you do make your means or some modest means through your teaching, but the primary goal is the service and the primary means comes from outside, not the students, but others who wish to support your mission. I'm only going to touch on the category of employee really briefly because it's probably the smallest There are so few full-time jobs in the yoga industry, and we all know what an employee is. It's somebody who has an employer who pays them to do a job. And so in this case, you don't have to think about the business. You don't have to think about what people are paying, how much they're paying. All you do is you show up and you teach, and that's a great arrangement for some people. But the opportunities are few and far between, and a lot of yoga teachers find that they don't have enough ownership about what, how, and when they teach to make that really feel compatible with what they want to offer the world. The final category is the yoga business owner, entrepreneur, or micropreneur. And these are yoga teachers who do rely on teaching yoga for at least part of their living expenses. To me, being a yoga business owner is actually the most exciting possibility. And if you had told me 10 or 15 years ago that I would feel that way, I would have probably laughed in your face. I would have said, no, I would much rather have the means to be able to do this as a hobby or a charity, or I would much rather have a job and get to teach without having to think about the business. Because my commitment to yoga and my life circumstances thrust me into this position, I've come to realize that running your own business gives you the potential to make the greatest impact in the world through your teaching. The reason for this is that by its very nature, having a business must be sustainable. So looking at your business this way invites you to think differently, more deeply, and also from a bigger picture perspective about how you share your teaching with the world. Here is the unvarnished truth. If I was not thinking about my teaching as a business, I would never have been able to not just start this podcast, release an episode every single week for two and a half years. And if I hadn't done that, if I hadn't created this podcast and been really committed to it and figured out systems to help me stay consistent with it, then all the people who have reached out to me and shared what a tremendous impact this offering has made for their lives would not have had access to it. I would say that the biggest mindset shift that turned me from somebody who really thought business was terribly boring and kind of unethical into somebody who's passionate about business is that you can 100% treat your teaching as a business and also operate with integrity 
In fact, I believe that as a yoga practitioner, it would be your dharma if you have a business to have it be a business that's run with integrity. I believe any business owner has the challenge of staying connected to their values. And when you focus on yoga as your business, then you can use your practice and your teaching to keep your values front and center every single day, which I believe every single business owner would be wise to do. At the same time, business is also a beautiful place to practice yoga because it will put you outside your comfort zone on a regular basis. As you challenge yourself to stay present and connected during uncomfortable situations, you will build your resilience. As you build that resilience, you increase your capacity to make a positive impact. I love the way that yoga seems to be able to meet so many different people where they are and invite them into self-compassion and inquiry. There are other frameworks out there that can bring purpose to our lives, but how many of them include so many aspects of our existence? Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, all of these are addressed within the yoga framework. After all these years of practice, I almost feel like I have a relationship with yoga. Just the word itself brings me comfort. Yoga. The word reminds me of my connection to self because of all the years of practice. It's like a shortcut to remembering who I really am. Before I started the Yoga Teacher Resource, my business name was True Self Yoga. And that was a reminder that the purpose of yoga is to reconnect with the deepest and most unchanging aspect of ourselves. Now, for some, there are a lot of other things that need to be addressed first. Self-compassion, pain, hyperactive nervous systems. But it's all leading to this place of deeper truth. So although the journey of yoga is intended to deepen my connection to that which is beyond my personality and beyond me as an individual... It also holds space for complementary opposites. It doesn't compel me to reject or ignore my individual self. Instead, it invites a relationship between the two that's incredibly dynamic and endlessly fascinating. And to me, this dynamic relationship between the individual and the universal is the heart of why so many of us find our sense of meaning and purpose within the practices of yoga. I'm grateful to have found this framework and engaged in this relationship because I don't think I would like myself very much if I hadn't. And if there's any meaning or purpose in life, let it be to be someone that we like and respect. The journey's never complete, but that's part of the appeal. May we notice our patterns just a little more quickly. May we pause just a moment longer before we react. May we treat others with the care and compassion that we crave for ourselves. Namaste. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring enough to teach yoga.